You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There's something in modern man that makes him look at society and say, I could do this better, but smaller, and over there. Few succeed in such a vision. Although many utopian societies seem doomed from the outset, the Republic of Minerva was up against a unique challenge. They were trying to create a libertarian micronation on land that belonged to someone else. A Nevada real estate mogul raised $100 million to create a utopian society on Pacific reefs, with no taxes, welfare, or economic intervention, where they would live cheaply off of tourism and fishing. The trouble was, the island nation of Tonga owned those reefs, and the Minervans had to leave. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, commonly known as the Shakers, were a Protestant sect that broke off from the Quakers in England in 1747. A charismatic Scottish woman called Mother Anne Lee had received visions from God. In 1774, she brought her followers to America. At their height in 1830, there were over 18 Shaker communities, from Kentucky to Maine. Like most reformist movements of the time, the Shakers were agriculturally based and believed in common ownership of property, as well as the confession of sins. The Shaker credo demands duty to God, duty to man, separation from the world, simplicity of language, and right use of property. As pacifists, they were exempted from military service, and became the United States' first conscientious objectors during the Civil War. Shaker families consisted of brothers and sisters who lived in gender-segregated communal homes of up to a hundred individuals. During the mandatory Sunday community meetings, it was not uncommon for members to break into spontaneous dance, which is supposedly where the Shaker moniker came from. Unlike most of the groups you'll hear about today, the Shakers practiced celibacy. All the time. Totally. Totally celibate. All the time. So they weren't having children to bolster their numbers. Membership came via converts or by adopting children. As the younger members left the community and older members passed away, converts were harder and harder to come by, and many of the communities were forced to close. Of the original 18 communities, most had closed by the early 1900s. With one small Shaker community still in existence in Maine today, the Shakers are by far the longest-lived American utopian experiment. And Shaker influence can still be seen in fashion, furniture design, textiles, and music. One of the best well-known utopian communities in America, Brook Farm, or to give it its full name, the Brook Farm Institute of Agriculture and Education, 
was founded in 1841 in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, which is now considered part of Boston. It was organized and directed by George Ripley, a former Unitarian minister and leader in the Transcendental Club, an informal gathering of intellectuals, along with his wife, Sophia Dana Ripley, a woman of wide cultural and academic experience. The commune was built on a 200-acre farm and centered on the ideas of radical social reform and self-reliance. The Ripley's plan was to equally distribute the tasks of daily life while providing education for all participants. The end goal was a balance of work and leisure that would, above all, benefit the greater good. The commune paid a dollar a day to men and women equally and provided housing, clothing, and food at cost give or take, to all members and their dependents. For free tuition in the community school and one year's worth of room and board, the residents were asked to complete 300 days of labor by either farming, working in the manufacturing shops, performing domestic chores and ground maintenance, or planning the community's recreational events. The project was financed by the sale of stock, A purchaser of one share automatically became a member of the Institute, which was governed by a board of directors. The profits, when there were any, were divided into a number of shares corresponding to the total number of man-days of labor, with every member entitled to one share for each day's labor performed. According to the Articles of Agreement, Brook Farm was to combine the thinker and the worker, to guarantee the greatest mental freedom and to prepare a society of liberal, cultivated persons. Brook Farm attracted not only intellectuals, boasting dozens of teachers in their member roles, but farmers and craftsmen as well. Brook Farm did well in its first year and was visited by numerous dignitaries and writers like Ralph Waldo Emerson. Brook Farm was noted particularly for its excellent school, which sought to establish Quote, perfect freedom of relations between students and teaching body. Discipline at the school came in the form of a gentle attempt to instill in the student a sense of personal responsibility. There were no set study hours, and each student was required to give a few hours a day for manual labor. There was an infant school, a primary school, and a college preparatory course. Although communal living has some disadvantages, For a while, it seemed like the ideal of the founders would be realized. Within three years, the community had added four houses, workrooms, and dormitories. They began to refer to the community as a phalanx when Brook Farm adopted some of the theories of the French socialist Charles Fourier. The adoption of Fourierism meant changes in the distribution of labor, with young people now having to do all of the dirty work, like repairing roads, cleaning stables, and slaughtering animals. This caused many residents, especially the younger ones, to leave. All available funds were redirected into the construction of a large central building, to be known as the Phalanstery, which burned to the ground during the celebration of its completion. This was about the same time that they were hit with an outbreak of smallpox. Though the colony struggled on for a while afterwards, the enterprise gradually failed, closing in 1847. The land and buildings were sold in 1849, becoming, in series, a failed farm, Civil War training ground, orphanage, and the Gethsemane Cemetery, the latter of which still stands today. 
it's been another great week for interaction with my brainiacs. The main post for last week's episode, Birdpocalypse, got two Twitter responses and one email through my website. That doesn't sound like much, but if you're anyone who does promotion on social media, you know how hard it is to get any response at all. And also, the two Twitter comments made it clear that people are listening to the show all the way through to the very last second. I gotta admit, I don't always do that. When I start to hear the host wind down, sometimes I go ahead and jump off. So it means a lot to me that people are listening all the way through like that. So with this uptick in interaction, which I hope will stick around, should I start a message board either on Facebook or somewhere else? A place where we can all share interesting facts that we come upon? Let me know in a comment on the social media post for this episode on Facebook or Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts or Twitter slash brainonfactspod that will come out Tuesday morning. And of course, it's always a super help to me if you retweet or share the episode post. After visiting Brook Farm and finding it too worldly for their tastes, Bronson Alcott, father of Little Women author Louisa May, and Charles Lane founded the Fruitlands Commune in June 1843 near Harvard, Massachusetts. The idea was to return as nearly as possible to the Garden of Eden. But between the infighting, the weather, and poor health, it was actually more like a camping expedition in the Third Circle of Hell. It being a commune, the members were against the individual ownership of property, were political anarchists, believed in free love, and were vegetarians. The group of 11 adults and a few children were also forbidden to use any animal products like honey, wool, beeswax, or manure. I've heard of people objecting to wool, even though modern sheep need to be shorn or they'll turn into one big walking tangle. Google Shrek the sheep if you don't believe me, but manure? It's the only animal byproduct that I will personally guarantee you the animal does not mind you taking. Fruitland's residents were also not allowed to use animals for labor, and only plant produce that grew with minimal intervention so as not to disturb worms and other organisms in the soil. As experimental settlements go, Fruitland's ranks among the more ill-conceived. The few settlers had little farming experience and, again, no animal labor or fertilizer. Their strict diet of grains and fruit left many in the group malnourished and sick. At best, it did not provide enough energy for all the manual labor. The group possessed a vast library, but couldn't read after dark, because candles and oil for lamps both come from animals. The division of labor was never fair. Many of the group's residents saw manual labor as spiritually inhibiting, and soon the commune couldn't provide enough food to sustain the members. The infighting between co-founders Lane and Alcott and Alcott's wife Abigail became so bitter that even 10-year-old Louisa May wrote about it in her journal, worried that her father would leave them. That could be because Alcott and Lane often went gallivanting across the country on penniless pilgrimages trying to recruit new members, leaving everyone else behind to do the heavy lifting. Fruitlands lasted seven months in 1843, from June to January, and it's probably only remembered 
because of the cast of famous transcendentalists that the founders were associated with. What's a person to do if they love vegetables, but hate squares and rectangles and things like rectangular bricks and square houses? This was the dilemma of a 19th century phrenologist, Orson Squire Fowler, who wrote, Is the right angle the best angle? Why not employ some other mathematical figures as well as the square? Fruits, eggs, tubers, nuts are made spherical in order to enclose the most material in the least compass. He argued that building houses as octagons, a feasible shape to build that comes close to a circle, would lead to comfortable and naturally harmonious living. A number of builders and architects agreed, and octagonal houses began popping up across the country. At the same time as the octagon fad, vegetarianism was really taking off. In the 1840s, people turned to veggies out of fear of the safety of meat in those days between the invention of rail shipment and the invention of refrigerated train cars. There were also moral concerns beyond the obvious. Some felt that eating meat widened economic disparity, and some likened meat production to slavery. So many abolitionists were also vegetarians. One person who was simultaneously taken with both ideas was a British man named Henry Club, who moved to New York City in the 1850s and worked at the New York Tribune under the tutelage of its founder and fellow vegetarian abolitionist Horace Greeley. Club worked to promote the American Vegetarian Society while at the same time writing fiery, principled abolitionist columns for the newspaper. When Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, leaving those states' status as free or slaveholding undetermined, Club came up with a plan to further both causes at once. He would settle a group of vegetarian abolitionists in Kansas to extol the virtues of vegetarian self-sufficiency and influence the rest of the state against slavery. Club bought ads in Eastern newspapers which read things like Hasten, you lovers of carrots, you eaters of unbolted grain. In 1855, dozens of vegetarian abolitionists gathered in New York to discuss the Kansas settlement, which would be founded on principles including economic equality. Everyone would purchase and own an equal share of the venture. Club screened the applicants carefully, and in the end, 50 families were selected based on their demonstrated commitment to both abolitionism and vegetarianism. In his 2015 book, The Vegetarian Crusade, author Adam Spritzen writes, Colonists were required to sign an oath promising to abstain from intoxicating liquor, tobacco, and animal flesh as a precondition of residency. Well, that's me out. As Club began to draft the plans, he drew inspiration from Orson Squire Fowler, who was himself a member of the American Vegetarian Society. A vision emerged for Octagon City, a place where all dwellings would be eight-sided and would each face inward toward a large octagon which would contain a school, park, church, library, and meeting house. Members would own their individual dwellings privately, as well as a plot of farmland behind the house, and possess equal shares in the central structures. The design was thought to promote the values of health, resourcefulness, communalism, and of course, the best use of space. Octagon City offered residents the best of both worlds, a private home inside of a communal landmass. 
This undoubtedly appealed to vegetarians, who were the living incarnation of the competing forces of urban sophistication and rural romanticism, says Spritzen. In 1856, the land was purchased and settlers enthusiastically began planning for the journey. Octagon City was one of many anti-slavery settlements being planned for Kansas at the time, and Northeastern newspapers wrote approvingly. Midwestern newspapers, not so much. The Chicago Tribune published a mocking article saying that philosophers, fiddlers, phrenologists, and vegetarians were no match for the frontier, which was fit only for beef-eating men. This didn't deter the vegetarians, who set out on the difficult 1,200-mile or 1,900-kilometer journey by way of wagon, boat, and foot. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The early settlers immediately began building, but progress was slow. By the time the second wave of settlers arrived, very little had been accomplished. There were no communal buildings. Only one new home had been constructed, a basic log cabin with a dirt floor and four standard walls. Club himself lived in an abandoned Osage wigwam. The remaining residents lived in cloth-covered shacks. There were only two ovens, one plow, and not a single octagon. Some newcomers turned around immediately. Others, though, were more determined. For a while, they continued working to build the colony, subsisting well enough on, quote, a diverse diet of wild peas and beans, beds of onions, boiled greens, johnny cakes, pumpkins, squash, melons, cucumbers, and potatoes. But it was obvious that they were not prepared for the coming winter, and the looming threat of starvation, coupled with growing conflicts with pro-slavery neighbors, led many to abandon Octagon City in October of 1857. A few of the vegetarians stayed in the area, even after it became clear that the colony itself was done for. Those who remained developed friendships with the local Osage Indians, who often shared food with them and taught them the best practices for growing vegetables in the Kansas soil. Osage folklore actually contains references to vegetarians. The tribe was said to have been born of a union between two competing tribes, 
one exclusively hunters and the other exclusively farmers. The Osage called the vegetarian ancestors the Peace People, which is probably why they were willing to be so helpful. Today there is no physical trace of Octagon City, but there are still some octagonal houses scattered throughout the country. The day that I record this episode about failed insular communities is also the day that the second of this month's bonus mini-episodes comes out for the Brainiacs over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. What's this episode about? A particular religious group in Russia who, like the Shakers, believed in celibacy, but these guys weren't taking any chances. So head over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts to check out the perks available at the different tier levels. If you'd like to make a one-time donation to help defray the costs of putting on the podcast, you can always go to yourbrainonfacts.com and hit the donate button. Every single donation is greatly and sincerely appreciated, especially while I'm assembling my second podcast, which will also have a YouTube channel, Science with Savannah, age seven which will hopefully premiere a few weeks after this episode airs, assuming an adult with ADD can keep a seven-year-old child on task. When you see fancy silverware, you don't immediately think of free love communes. Or maybe you do, I'm not here to judge. But if it's a set of Oneida silverware, you should. The Oneida community of upstate New York was one of the most intriguing of the dozens of utopian communities that sprang up in 19th century America. Most were based loosely on the theories of the French socialist Charles Fourier, who believed some things that seemed radical in his time but reasonable in ours, like that traditional marriage could harm a woman's individual rights, and things that still seem weird, like people should live in four-story buildings with the richest at the top. While most utopian communities were short-lived, Oneida lasted for three decades, from 1848 to 1880, and was guided by the idiosyncratic religious views of its founder and leader, John Humphreys Noyes. According to Spencer Claw, author of Without Sin, The Life and Death of the Oneida Community, Vermont-born John Humphrey Noyes experienced a conversion during a religious revival in 1831 and preached what was called a perfectionist style of Christianity that he interpreted to mean that he could do no wrong. Noyes became the hub of a group of men and women, eventually numbering about 300, who saw monogamy as impure because God demanded variety in every facet of life, and surely that included sex. The best way to counter monogamy was for the continual changing of partners, under the supervision of noise, of course. All the men at Oneida were thought to be linked in divine marriage to all of the women, in what was called complex marriage. Many community members had two or three different partners in any given week. To avoid unwanted pregnancies and to ensure maximum pleasure for women, Allegedly, the Oneidans practiced coitus reservatus, or as Noyes called it, male continence, intercourse without climax. Couples found in idolatrous relationships, i.e. monogamous, or those who broke the rule of male continence, were chastised publicly at group meetings. Couples could request to have a child, 
but children lived in separate quarters apart from their parents and were raised communally. Communal living in Oneida had advantages. There was great group interest in music, painting, and poetry. Games and sports were also an important part of everyday life. Work was looked on as a joyous shared activity. Community leaders put this cooperative spirit to good economic use. They established a variety of businesses, the most successful of which, the eponymous flatware company, is today the world's largest manufacturer of stainless steel knives, forks, and spoons. Noise took advantage of his position as sexual arbiter. Raise your hand if you didn't see that coming. He indoctrinated his followers with the idea of ascending fellowship, where the community elders, who were considered especially godly, led younger believers heavenward through sex. Shortly after puberty, boys and girls were assigned a succession of older partners. Teenagers commonly slept with people in their 50s or 60s, though they would get to choose partners their own age later on. And there's evidence that Noyes kept 12- and 13-year-old girls for himself. As you might expect in a situation where people have their sexual partners chosen for them, possessiveness and jealousy were rife. The problems surrounding complex marriage contributed to the community's demise. Young people in particular got tired of being assigned older lovers that they found undesirable. The response to Oneida from outside ranged from titillated curiosity of tourists to the moral outrage of puritanical ministers who wanted it gone. The latter attitude eventually sealed Oneida's fate. In late June 1879, John Noyes secretly left for Canada under threat of prosecution. With its leader gone and internal disputes intensifying, the community abandoned the practice of complex marriage and focused on its business interests. The surprising thing is not that Oneida failed, but that it lasted as long as it did. Attempted utopian communities may seem like a relic of Victorian or Edwardian times, but the drive to create an idyllic living situation persists. Where some people saw Warren County, North Carolina, the former home of many antebellum plantations, as an eternally crippled consequence of exploitation, civil rights leader Floyd McKissick saw in the county potential for prosperity and inclusivity in the form of a town called Soul City. In Soul City, McKissick envisioned a wide boulevard that would lead visitors past an executive office complex, industrial park, and man-made lake into the development which would include shopping centers, a countywide high school, bike trails, and space to grow food. What made his vision different from the other communities we've talked about is that Soul City would be a town built by African Americans. McKissick thought Soul City would be home to 50,000 people, both white and black, and generate 24,000 jobs within its first 30 years. He also believed that its presence in rural America would palliate the 1960s urban crisis, which he thought came at least in part because areas like Warren County did not offer African Americans a path toward economic growth. The 1950s and 60s comprised a period of extreme flux for African Americans in both rural and urban areas. 
Frustrated with economically depressed segregationist regions, many African Americans in the rural South moved to cities, where they would often face further discrimination in the form of job discrimination, housing inequality, and police brutality. Urban crime and pollution reached alarming heights, and whites began to abandon city centers in a movement known as white flight. Many African Americans did not have the means to follow them, and were effectively shackled to rapidly declining urban centers. While McKissick would march with Reverend King and serve as president of the Congress on Racial Equality, he grew frustrated with the civil rights movement, believing it didn't go far enough. In 1968, McKissick shifted strategy, relying on capitalism to combat the racism that fueled the destitute conditions of black neighborhoods. And Warren County, North Carolina was certainly destitute. In 1969, per capita income was $1,638, about $12,000 today, annually. The median family income for black families was less than the national per-person income. Dropout rates hovered at 45%, and its younger population was fleeing for cities elsewhere. In 1966, President Linda Johnson had launched the Model Cities program, a component of his war on poverty. We sure do love declaring war on things. We don't fix the thing, but we did declare war on it. Rightly or wrongly, model cities saw the urban crisis as a technical problem that could be solved with a technical solution, like an influx of federal dollars for infrastructure improvements. President Johnson supported McKissick's vision, and in January 1969, McKissick announced that his utopian black-built community, one of 14 Model Cities projects and the only model city to be built from the ground up, would become a reality on 5,000 acres of Warren County land. Less than a week after McKissick made his historic announcement, Richard Nixon would officially become President of the United States. Despite a number of racist policies like the War on Drugs and the Southern Strategy, a plan to use racism to get white Southerners to vote Republican, Nixon supported McKissick's vision, if only for political reasons. By issuing federal funds to, quote, enterprising African Americans in a practice known as grantsmanship, Nixon thought he could transform, quote, black militants into black Republicans. Armed with $17 million, $14 million of it from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Model City's federal sponsor, McKissick broke ground in November of 73. McKissick and black-owned architectural firm Ifill Johnson & Hanchard constructed houses, an innovative water system, a health clinic, and an industrial center. McKissick at the time said he was extremely happy with the progress. But only 33 people lived within Seoul City's borders that year, a number that wouldn't be helped by the following year's oil crisis, which caused building costs to soar, sometimes doubling overnight. Nor did it help that Seoul City became the object of bad press and obstructive politics. Negative media coverage prompted politicians, ostensibly worried about wasting taxpayer money, to demand a federal investigation. While the investigations cleared McKissick and company of wrongdoing, 
by December of 75, it was too late. Soul City lost any private investment opportunity it once had, with companies like General Motors pulling out of talks with McKissick. By 1979, only around 150 people, 3% of the original projection, called Soul City home. Housing and urban development also pulled its support and auctioned off Soul City for $1.5 million. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There was also an attempted utopia in Texas created by serial magnet C.W. Post, named Post Texas. Construction on the city was going well, with 35 homes plus other buildings complete, when state officials pointed out that the town could not be the county seat as Post intended, because it was four miles too far from the center of the county. So Post moved all the buildings he could and just abandoned the rest. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Hey, you still there? Yeah, you're still there. Hey, Richard. Thank you so much for all of your support. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.